Brooke Fraser's Albertine remains one of New Zealand's most beloved albums, released just before Christmas in 2006 with Columbia Records via Sony BMG. It gave us staple hits like Deciphering Me and Shadow Feet and hardcore fan favourites Hosea's Wife and C.S. Lewis' Song, as well as songs we dwell on for their potency, such as the album's title track, Albertine based off the story of a young orphaned girl Brooke met on her trip to Rwanda many years ago. Albertine went platinum on release, becoming a number one chart debut, sitting alongside U2, Westlife, Eminem, and the soundtrack for High School Musical. The album stood in a league of its own, thematically and sonically. We're talking the era of Justin Timberlake's future sex love sounds, Gwen Stefani's The Sweet Escape, the Red Hot Chili Peppers Stadium Arcadium, and the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. Following the breakout success Brooke found herself in with her debut album, What To Do With Daylight, she went inwards. What came out was the sound of authenticity, faith, observing, absorbing, watching, the hallmark of Brooke's observational style of songwriting. In December 2021, Brooke celebrates 15 years of Albertine being in the world. It was many things, a record that introduced America to Brooke Fraser, inspiring an extensive world tour lasting three years, preparing her for the international success of her next record, Flags. To all those who love Brooke's music, there is an undeniable heart and sticking power in these songs that remain as powerful and potent as ever. This is Resonate. 15 years of Brooke Fraser's Albertine. A special one-off episode marking the release of such a poignant record. I'm your host, Ash Wallace, one half of Foley, a pop music lover and of course, a huge Brooke Fraser fan. Who isn't? Over this episode, I'll take you behind the scenes in an intimate, up-close look at the making of this iconic record with Brooke and special guests. We'll cover off the hits, but for now, it feels fitting to start at the heart of the record, Albertine, the catalyst for this project. Brooke joins me from her home in Los Angeles. I'd love to start with Albertine, the song, because I think that colours the whole record. So I guess, tell us about your experience of meeting Albertine for the first time and that kind of connection that you formed. I guess being drawn to humanity and wanting to help somehow was always a passion of mine, just as much as music. And so I, from my early teens, and possibly even younger actually, would do the World Vision 40-hour famine at school, as many of us did growing up in New Zealand. And I was really into that from a young age and started sponsoring a child. As soon as I was old enough too, my mum asked me how I was gonna pay for it. And so I went <laughs> and got a job washing dishes at Circa restaurant in Wellington. And so that's always been really important to me. And those passions have been kind of parallel. By this point, everyone in New Zealand knew Brooke Fraser as the young 19-year-old singer-songwriter from Wellington whose debut album, What To Do With Daylight, catapulted her to local fame. The album had four number one radio singles and went seven times platinum in New Zealand and gold in Australia. She'd even toured with John Mayer and David Bowie at this early stage. It sounds surreal. Between this and creating her next record, Brooke went back to what she knew from the beginning, connecting with her core values of family, community, and her faith. 
In 2005, she would take two important trips that changed her life and shaped the course for what became her mission over the coming years. I found myself here being a musician and really wondering if what I was doing was important enough, if it was really making a difference. And so, of course, music um, was my passion and I loved songwriting, but I, I was also like, as a person, like, what am I gonna contribute to this world while I'm here? And is music enough? Is it making enough of a difference? Do I need to quit this and get some practical skills and come back and do something else? I went and met one of my sponsored children named Anna, and we went to visit her in her small, beautiful little home. And Anna's brothers were older than her and they worked far away in the Tanzanite mines. And I remember they came back from work and the contrast of their beautiful skin that was covered in this dust from the Tanzanite. And I remember we sat around and one of the World Vision workers had brought a guitar and asked if I would sing them a song. And I was a little bit embarrassed, but I was like, get over yourself, Brooke, if it's the only thing that you can do, like, do it. And so I remember playing them a, a song and then at the end, I guess I was visibly embarrassed. And I remember through the translator, one of Anna's brothers saying to me, no, no, please don't stop singing. He said, because when you sing, your voice is very soothing and it makes us forget all our troubles. Oh, wow. And the, it makes me emotional even thinking about it now. And I just thought, if this is something that, that God has given me, if it can ease somebody's suffering, even for a few moments, I have to give it. I have to get over myself, you know, and give it. So that was one experience of that trip that was really formative for me. And then, of course, that was preceded by that extremely life-changing trip to Rwanda. That extremely life-changing trip to Rwanda would chart the course for her next album. With the assistance of World Vision, Brooke was paired with a guide, Joelle. I spent the week with Joelle traveling around Kigali and outskirts and seeing visiting communities, seeing some of the work World Vision are doing. And it was during the course of that trip that I met many of the people who kind of made their way in some form during the song. But then it was on the last day that we went to a school and we had spent the whole week together, day and night, Joelle and I, and he took me into an empty classroom in the school and he said, now I'm ready to tell you my story. And he brought in a young girl who went to the school. She was, I guess, a tween probably at the time. And as she sat there in her school uniform, he told me a story about them surviving the genocide in 1994 and that she was actually the child of his neighbour. The Rwandan genocide of 1994. Over 100 days, around 800,000 people were slaughtered in Rwanda by ethnic Hutu extremists targeting the minority Tutsi community as well as political opponents. And when the genocide began, it became very apparent to him that her and her family were going to be killed. And he said he couldn't save everybody, but he said to himself that if he could even save one person, it would be worth it. So he took Albertine and fled with her, sheltered her over the days and the weeks they had under floorboards, all of these things, and basically saved her life. Her whole family were killed, and they came close to being killed themselves many times and miraculously escaped. And then he told me the story with her sitting beside him at the end. He said to me, you will write a song, and you will call it Albertine, and you will tell the world our story.
The line in the chorus, faith without deeds is dead, comes from the Bible's book of James, chapter two. The exact line is, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If you believe in your convictions, there should be evidence of that in your action. A follow-up. Brooke took her assignment from Joelle seriously. On the flight home, she began journaling the experience, untangling the emotions, the psychological and spiritual impact of what she'd just taken in. She sat with it and let it brew. Wasn't long after returning to Sydney, where she relocated in 2004, that Brooke began chugging away at the initial chord sequence that forms the verses of Albertine. Her story put into words, ready to be heard. Brooke set out to pull this record together with the help of her longtime manager, Campbell Smith, and the support of her beloved friend, the late Malcolm Black, head of A&R for Sony BMG at the time. This time, it was an all-American cast. Here's Brooke again. Recording this project, what inspired you to record in America with an all-American band as opposed to coming home to record in New Zealand? I think it wasn't so much about the location, but about finding finding the right producer. Malcolm Black, my beloved friend, A&R at Sony at that time, he was just always incredible. And, and we had many months of conversation about the kind of producer who could help me create what I wanted to create rather than fitting into somebody else's impression. You know, somebody didn't even know me, somebody else's impression of who I was or what my music sounded like. And when I asked Campbell, um, my manager, about this, he talked about how we were looking for somebody, a producer who would be a collaborator, not a director. So Malcolm came back with a list of names and we kind of just went through the list. And apparently what happened was that I had a conversation on the phone with Marshall and it was from that phone conversation that I knew that that he was the person, that he was the guy that we needed to work with. So yeah, LA was where Marshall lived and, and so that's why this is where it happened. The Marshall Brooks talking about is Marshall Altman, the producer and Brooks wingman throughout the process. Marshall is a Nashville-based American producer, songwriter and A&R for Network Music Group. He previously worked in the world of A&R at Capitol Records, Hollywood Records and Columbia where his last two projects were Katy Perry and One Republic. He works out of his own studio, The Gold Line, in Berry Hill. Marshall joins me over Zoom from Oregon, where he's visiting colleges with his son. Marshall spent a lot of time preparing and getting to know Brooke at the pre-production stage. He flew out to Australia for two weeks so he could get to know Brooke, understand her and the urgent mission she was on. They worked out of a remote studio in a park, 45 minutes out of Sydney, and went through the songbook that formed the track list of Albertine. Brooke was like the second, maybe the second or third artist I had worked with that I realized had something important to say and was already a great artist. Like I knew Brooke was a great artist, whether she was aware of it at that point, not long after meeting her, I sort of got, you know, it, you know, this is what we do. Like this is what my life is. Like I've devoted my life to artists, so I've tried to understand those things. And Brooke had something about her she just had a look in her eye. The, there was a commitment to what the record was about, the experience that she'd had that led to writing these songs. It felt important, that pre-production. It was just a great way to understand who Brooke was and for her to understand who I was. And I was intimidated by these songs, by the experience that she'd had. And once I started to understand her humanity a little bit more, I felt like 
not only did I have a responsibility to her as a record producer, but I had a responsibility to these songs, to this experience that she was trying to, to capture. You know, it was magic in the lyric and the melody. It was our job, Brooks and mine, to capture the magic in the recording. As Brooke will come to explain, Marshall and Brooke really bonded over common values. A level of trust was formed. Family, community, and a more spiritual approach to the creative process. Marshall was in and completely invested in the mission. Not long after the pre-production in Sydney, Brooke arrived in Los Angeles to get set up for a summer of recording with a band of people she would form lasting friendships with. I had initially been put up in like a pool house in Tarzana. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember driving there, you know, I got my little rental car and I, I drove there and it was, I just knew, I don't know, we just had these instincts of, I just knew that it didn't feel entirely like a same situation. I remember calling Campbell and I was like, I need, I, this is not, I can't stay here. I don't feel like this is safe. And so they called Marshall and Marshall called his friend, a producer called Brian Maloof, who produced Michael Jackson, the Bad Album and Queen and all these iconic (laughs) records. And so Marshall was friends with Brian Maloof and Brian Maloof and his family had a guest house above their garage and were so kind to let me live in their guest house above their garage. So Marshall was kind of the link there. I just remember, yeah, just meals and meals and meals around Marshall and Leela, his wife's table. And they had two young children at the time. And I remember I ate my first corn dog at like a, a block party <laughs> and got terrible food poisoning and oh, all this no. stuff. It was just this, but just, and, and I remember the Maloofs, like Brian Maloofs' wife, like trying to nurse me back to health while I had this God. terrible um, food poisoning, but just this experience of community. I think it was that Marshall, what he valued and what was important to him were many of the same things that were important to me. With Brooke and Marshall steering the ship, a killer cast of musicians were enlisted. This band consisted of Michael Chavez, Sean Hurley, Christopher Pooley, David Levita, and Aaron Sterling. Between them, they've played with some big names. Think Gwen Stefani, Alanis Morissette, Lionel Richie, John Mayer, plus heaps more. You get the picture. The album was mixed and recorded with prolific engineer Joe Zook, who has mixed with everyone from Smokey Robinson to One Direction. Here's Brooke again. These are the collection of songs that I'm supposed to put out into the world at this time. And then I think, you know, there's absolutely divine grace and and sovereignty that comes into it. And then it was with Marshall at this group of time, with this particular group of musicians who, I mean, I to be honest, I hadn't listened to Albertine the album in many years and went for a drive earlier to um, refresh my memory. And (laughs) I'm listening to, I'm listening to, you know, some of the guitar parts and the bass lines and the drums and the keys and just the, the particular group of players. These weren't just session musicians who came in and phoned it in. I feel like you can hear that they each have an, a unique approach to their instrument that is so sensitive and precise and it's nuanced. They are all so skilled. I think, yeah, it's there. there is a, a lot to be said for. I, I mean, I would love to make much of the musicians who, who played on this project because they brought all of themselves and they're just so, each of them, so incredibly gifted in their own right and how they applied those gifts and those talents in this album, I just think is amazing. And it almost like it had to be this group of people at this time in history for Albertine, the album, to be what it was. For musicians, engineers and producers, the studio is a space of magic. It's where the molecules of a song come together. 
It's a sacred place of vulnerability, witnessing the synergy between the players, as well as the highs and the lows. The studio acts as a sponge, soaking up the energy of a recorded process. There's a certain honour about walking into a space that's been touched by the presence of voices, sounds and stories told before us. As a New Zealander, you get that from walking into a studio like Roundhead or Stebbing Studios. Albertine was recorded over a Californian summer at Track Record, a studio in North Hollywood built by the great Emmylou Harris. Marshall was sure this was the place. Here he is again. Great studios have their own spirit. Great studios are, you know, the energy, the sound waves, the music that's been made in them over time stays with them. And it might be a little fanciful to imagine that one can walk into a space and feel the echoes of the music that was made before. But I've always believed that, you know, and track felt like a holy place to me. Along with Albertine, many albums were recorded and mixed at track record, from the Tori Amos album Little Earthquakes to Maroon 5's Songs About Jane. The studio has come alive through recording or mixing work from an endless list, from Iggy Pop to Wu-Tang Clan. Snoop Dogg recorded his first two albums here. The list is endless. Amazing, amazing records have been made in that space. But Tom, who owned the building, was such a welcoming presence, just kind, kind and humble and smart. And, you know, you walked into that room and you felt like, for me, I walked into that room and I felt, the first time I felt like, okay, a lot of great music has been made in here. Even before I knew it was made there. You, like, you walk in and it just has some, you know, there's some physicists that believe that all sound makes an imprint on all matter. And maybe some of that grace and beauty was still in those walls, the wood and the cloth and the shape of the room. I don't know, but... There's some undefinable elements, just the way music is sometimes undefined. You know, like you just know you love it. Sometimes you don't know why. A room has the, you know, a recording space has its own spirit and its own energy. And I got lucky that time because I picked the right room for the right artist. We leave part of ourselves, especially in creative situations. You walk into a room and you write a song. That energy stays, you know. It becomes ingrained in the fabric of that space. I think it's interesting to hear that Marshall being such a key collaborator for you, I still experience today that the best collaborators, even if, you know, there might be somebody out there who's such a talented producer or such a talented writer, but if you don't connect on some of those really fundamental human values, it's really hard to collaborate effectively. And his hospitality and the way that clearly you guys connect on other levels outside of the music itself, I mean, that stuff is just, it's just as important as the kind of musical connection, I think. Yeah, I think, and I think that was so important to, I don't think that record could have been made without the foundation of trust that it was built on, trust and community. And I think that you can almost hear that in the songs and in the production, that it doesn't feel like a kind of mechanical experience. It feels a lot like community and trust. And, and that's what we had. And I think that's what I'm, I mean, I'm so grateful to Marshall for so many things, but that obviously his kindness to me as a person, even beyond his skill as a producer and, and him being unthreatened and welcoming of me bringing 
all of who I was to the table in the process. I never felt for a moment like I couldn't be completely myself. And I think that had to be that way for the record to be what it became. And I think, yeah, I look back on those days of making that record in that room with that group of people as just so special, so much safety, so much trust, so much warmth and so much joy. How did recording this album feel different to the What To Do With Daylight sessions? Because obviously a lot had kind of changed from album one to album two. How did that process feel different, aside from obviously different collaborators in a different space? I think What To Do With Daylight, which was my first record, was my first time really working with a band to create the sound of these songs that I'd written just on the piano or on the guitar on my own. So that was just like stepping into a whole new world and it was incredible. Um, I was just kind of taking everything in and obviously still being my <laughs> outspoken self and having opinions and senses about how these songs needed to be articulated. What to do with Daylight for me was learning and wonder and all of these things, whereas Albertine, I guess by that point, I had taught a lot and taught a lot with the band. And I guess it was the beginnings of, these were the kind of pre-days of my journey to then producing myself. So, you know, I, when I was realising, oh, I, I actually really have preferences as to how the snare drum sounds and to what kind of texture the keys should have in this particular section of the song, because the lyrics saying this or the melody saying this, and so it needs to be supported in this particular type of way. So I feel like Albertine and that process and, and working with Marshall was really me also starting to find my voice as a producer and watching him, I feel like producing also is very psychological, um, knowing how to read the energy in the room, the energy of the players, when things hit a wall or when there's a lull, what you need to do to kind of redirect the room and get everything on track. And so I think from Marshall, I was in watching him and working with him. I was kind of, now it wasn't even, I don't know, it was just different to what to do with Dalek because now I was beginning to step into my own identity, learning to produce by him giving the space and room for me to have that voice and then also kind of just watching everything he did, the way that he worked with Joe Sook, the engineer, and all of these things. It was a producer partnership. Marshall encouraged Brooke to push that little bit further. He understood the importance of what she was trying to do. To capture the essence of the songs, they relied on the moment, recording the album in a mostly live way. It captured the spirit of Albertine, and you could sense a strong synergy between the players. Again, that feeling of community was important. Here's Marshall on how that went down. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch to call this album live from the way it was recorded, mostly live. Were there any challenges in doing it that way? Yeah, there were definitely times where I knew it wasn't what was needed. Um, in terms, like we weren't getting what was needed. I mean, the story of the the song Albertine is one in particular, where we were doing it live and we just couldn't. We were trying to wrestle this thing down. The the biggest potential drawback of cutting something live is that you, meaning me, the producer, I would get caught up in the sort of greatness of these players and the greatness of Joe Zook as an engineer, who's really a brilliant engineer. And it would sound so, I mean, it would sound amazing. Just the tracking process, the, the record sounded amazing. If anything, the danger point, and, I, and I'd like to believe we got past that, but the danger point is that great players and great sounds, it's easy to sort of get caught up in that and miss whether or not those great players and great sounds are connecting to make the song better. And I think 
I'm sure I had plenty of private moments where I was doubting whether we were getting what we needed. But thankfully, the band and Joe and Brooke, you know, either they didn't see my insecurities or they just worked through them. Insecurity in the studio is a difficult thing. You can't have so much hubris that you think every thought you have is correct, but you can't be insecure because the moment you're insecure, it creates instability on the session, you know? And I think back then I was just sort of learning the difference between the two, like being supremely confident versus being full of doubt. And again, I am a better producer because Brooke Fraser wrote this record and hired me to produce her because the songs were real and visceral and alive. And she, like I said, she had that sense of responsibility to them and a sense of humility to them as well. And I think that just permeated through the session. And I, I remember feeling that way as well. Like, I have to trust this song and I have to trust this woman's voice. Those are the only things I, I have to trust. If I feel like they're being served well, then we'll be where we need to be. Mm. The live, you know, and the live thing, like I said, I mean, it's just more fun that way. Just to tell you the truth, I'm going to whisper. It's way more fun to do it that way. <laughs> now I'm going to introduce you to Christopher Pooley, the man behind the keys, which can be a versatile role in a recording setting. He was Brooke's right-hand guy for piano, Rhodes, organ, Wurlitzer, synth, even glockenspiel. Chris has done a prolific amount of musical directing for Gwen Stefani, Katy Perry, Kesha, Demi Lovato, Rita Ora, and more. He's currently the music director for American Idol. He takes me through a regular day during the Albertine sessions. I mean, I think we just, the first day we probably cut two songs, and then the next day we cut two songs, and then the next day we cut two. I mean, we were just right from the start. Right. I will say this, I listened to the album recently, and to me now, listening to it is how reserved we kind of all are. My job on a lot of the songs is just to make noise, do weird, trippy soundscape things and little, you know, like little feedback things with keyboards and a lot of strange sounds. And it seems like we never quite go to 10. We never, no one ever fully lays, because I think the, we're listening so hard to what everyone else is doing and we're trying to respect the song so much there are, except for maybe that one moment, C.S. Lewis, the instrumental, <laughs> that it feels really restrained to me. I mean, even um, Shadow Feet, where the sensation is that the whole thing kind of erupts into this really big sound. Everyone is actually playing fairly restrained, it sounds like to me, because they're still listening to the melody, still working out what each other's doing. It's not like we're recording by ourselves and we can do unlimited punch-ins and punch-outs without wasting everyone's time. So I think everyone is very dialed in to Brooke's melody, the song, and what everyone else is playing. It seems to like a heightened sense of awareness of what you're doing verse and with the players around you. Brooke being a multi-instrumentalist with piano and acoustic guitar as her usual weapons of choice, Chris followed her lead. And when she switched instruments, he worked around her. It was really just up to her. Some things were very clear that it was better if she just played it. Right. Because of how her vocals sat with her hands. And she just sounds better doing it that way, you know? And then other things where she was primarily driving the song from acoustic guitar, then I would play piano because she literally just already had her hands full playing acoustic guitar. So, I mean, I was, I'm really just there, was there as a, as a support to whatever she was doing. 
I think maybe with Shadow Feet, when she did it, there was a thought like, oh, well, maybe I'll record that again later or something when we first started it. But just what she played in the moment was just so good. And it was perfect. And it was one of those like, well, there's definitely no need for anyone to touch anymore. <laughs> <'cause that's>, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's perfect. Then there were some things, you know, it happens from time to time where you're playing and you just voice something a little wonky or something. And so either her and I would, go either punch that in or, you know, something like that. But for the most part, she was either sort of leading the song from acoustic or leading the song from piano, and that's how it stayed. She plays a lot of kind of open voicing styles, and that's I, I like that too. And then I think that's why it worked. I went on and did promo for her with the record and came to New Zealand and why it worked us going back and forth that way. The record was complete. It was time to take the story of Albertine beyond the walls of track record and Sony BMG. To maximise as many ears on the work as possible, Brooke began an extensive promotional campaign with Sony BMG's New Zealand team. The first song to be released off the album was Deciphering Me. Released in late September 2006, it shined on radio, remaining in the New Zealand charts for 22 weeks and holding a number one all-airplay chart position. It was eventually named Most Performed Work in New Zealand by APRA the following year, when it also won Airplay Record of the Year at the New Zealand Music Awards. The song was everywhere. The music video directed by Anthony Rose sees Brooke wandering through rain in Tokyo's neon lights. A world away from home and representative of the following years Brooke spent on the road. This is Brooke on the almighty beast of a song. Deciphering me, what did this song mean to you then and what does it mean to you now? I think the song for me, it was probably, I mean, this is the first time I've thought this deeply about it, I suppose, to be honest. But the song was written for me when I think about it. And again, I think sometimes it's 15 years ago, but I think sometimes you need those years to almost see more accurately what was going on at the time. Sometimes when you are in things. I had a conversation with a friend recently and we were talking about it. Sometimes it's unwise to label the chapter of life that you're in when you're in it, because then it feels like as you continue to move forward into the future, you have to stick with whatever narrative you came up with <laughs> for what was happening, you know? Yeah. This is my, you know, this is my fitness chapter. This is my whatever chapter. But I think sometimes, particularly when it, it comes to these formative seasons of your life, it's unwise to label them too early before the process is done because you're not going to be able to see it necessarily when you are in it. And so I think now when I look back on that period of my life, I had just moved to Australia. I was forming these really deep friendships with people who are still my very best friends to this day, one of them whom I married and um, <laughs> I'm still married to, who's <laughs> downstairs right now. When I think about deciphering me, I think about, you know, Scott, my husband. And when I wrote this song, we were still friends, but we hadn't started dating yet. But just, I think about the, the late nights and perhaps, yeah, the verse lyrics are a reference to you know, late summer nights, sitting out um, under the street lights of the suburbs of Sydney, talking about the mysteries of the universe and life and God and faith and all of these things and working ourselves out, working each other out, forming friendship, forming relationship, but against the context of this whole beautiful creation that we all get to exist in and yeah, intermingled, but all good, all good memories. I guess the idea of navigating being people together 
in the world. It's a beautiful thing. It's so, so, so relatable and so continuous. I feel like we spend our whole lives probably <laughs> continuing to try and work out who we are in the world and, and our relationships and our friendships. And, you know, such a timeless song to me because it, I mean, it's just going to be true always, you know, no matter where you are in mm. your life and no matter who you are, it's just so true. Throughout our conversation, the work of British author and theologian C.S. Lewis arises more than a few times. You may know a few of his greatest hits, one of which being the Chronicles of Narnia series. To this day, album track C.S. Lewis' song holds a particular currency with longtime Brooke fans. Brooke crafted a little-known song called Shadow Feet, the second single released from the album in March 2007. Airplay in Australia and the US took off, and it's been a long stayer for Brooks fans far and wide ever since. With Shadow Feet, it was inspired by a fiction book of Cedar S. Lewis's that's an allegory and it's called The Great Divorce. And it's basically about these people that are going on this long journey and they end up in this valley and they realize that they're ghosts. And then these people come down from this distant mountain range who are real people and they're trying to convince the, the ghostish people to come with them. But in this valley where they are, everything is very rigid. The blades of grass are very hard and the rocks are very hard and so it hurts the feet of the ghosts, the feet of the shadows to walk on them. And then these people that have come down from the mountains are trying to convince them to come up the mountain because then they'll get real bodies too and these things won't hurt them anymore. They'll be made of the same stuff. And so there's a quote in that book from where the title comes from. And the quote is, uh, Will you come with me to the mountains? It will hurt at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows, but will you come? So that's where that concept shadow feet comes from. So yeah, no credit to me or credit to C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Holding true to her promise, her conviction, and taking Albertine's story to the world, Brooke and her band embarked on an extensive world tour. Brooke and the band visited the far reaches, from Japan to the UK, the US, Australia, and New Zealand. I couldn't help but wonder how she managed to perform an emotionally taxing song like Albertine day in and day out. Here's Chris again, who experienced this close up. How did it feel performing those songs live, especially with the weight of a song like Albertine in the mix, tapping into that level of emotion in a performance every night? Well, I mean, I love playing the songs. I love the song. But it's also, I'm also very sort of tuned in to, to where she is when mm. she's singing the song. And for me, it's not, I enjoy the opportunity to, to play the song and tell the story, but it's so personal for her. And so I would you know, I'd be able to see for her just how hard it was to kind of carry that story and deliver it every night, especially, I mean, because you're, you know, day to day, you're in a different place. And, you know, you can be in a, in all sorts of different situations and moods. And to do promo and to play that song and to go into a radio station early, it's, and Brooke is so authentic and so wants to represent the people that she's talking about and the song and all that so faithfully that she just, I would just kind of watch her have to take that story on every time. And that was something as a friend I felt for her in that way because it meant so much to her. And she couldn't just kind of whip through the story and be like, oh, that's that was that. And that's what the song is about. Here it goes. You know, it was like she went in every time. So in one way, 
really fun to play. Another way, as a friend, to her, sometimes it was, it was heavy. Do you remember how long you were on the road? It was three years. Far yeah. out. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> I basically died at the end of it. <laughs> Performing such an extensive tour, day in and day out, what did you learn from that experience? When I think about the rooms that I played and even from the start of touring to the end, I think my first show in New York was at a little tiny venue which has since shut down called The Living Room and it had a capacity of like 30 people through to, you know, the, the bigger venues. We obviously ended up playing kind of even by the end of that cycle. I think Irving Plaza we got to and then, of course, in subsequent albums, the venues continued to increase in size. But just the... Um, I keep thinking, how did you guys find me? When I, I, I remember <laughs> playing in a, and it was in London, my first show. I can't remember the name of the venue, but it was a basement of a restaurant. And I remember the stage, it was just me. There was no, the stage was literally probably, you know, the size of, um, of a, a bathroom vanity. <sighs> and I remember literally if I'd moved, I was touching people. <laughs> like if I turned around with my guitar, it was that crammed in. But these memories of these first shows, my first time playing shows outside of Australia or New Zealand. And even now I marvel because I, I was talking to a friend of mine a few weeks ago from Ireland. And we don't really ever talk about, you know, my, my Brooke Fraser life or anything but maybe it came up that I was going to do this podcast. And he said, oh, yeah, me and all my friends listened to that in Ireland when I was in high school. And I was like, are you kidding? I remember the early days of the people who somehow had found this music, this album, and come along. And I remember playing at a sports bar at a strip mall in Kansas, people playing like Paul in the back of the room. And, <laughs> um, and so... And yeah, I have, it's just, uh, those, to be honest, it was hard. That's what I remember about the people who came. I have fond memories of that. But then obviously the tour went on for so long. And like I said, these rooms were small. We were probably losing money on the tour. So it was, we were in a white sprinter van and we would, so we couldn't afford a tour bus. We would drive all day. I remember we were having Wendy's for breakfast, which is just makes me, my stomach turn to even think <laughs> about it. It was like Wendy's for breakfast, Subway for lunch, and then, the venue might, you know, give us wings or something. So, um, <laughs> Nutrition, nice. Yes, exactly. And so that tour was very hard on my body as well. So literally I, I did have a form of breakdown at the end of that tour. But no, what I think about it, I'm like, no wonder. We were literally sitting in a van for eight hours a day eating rubbish and then singing about genocide every night and telling that story as well. Because, you know, Joel had said, you will tell the world about our story. So I would tell that story every night. It's a lot to cope with day in and day out on such a relentless tour. Tapping into the emotion of Albertine, the song in particular, how do you cope? At, at some point, did you have to switch off from it or compartmentalise that emotion to save your sanity from it? Or did you just lean into that emotion every night? In hindsight, for my mental and emotional health, I probably should have compartmentalised, but I took so seriously my assignment from Joelle to tell that story that I leaned into it fully every night um, for that period of years. And at the end of it, absolutely, I burnout was the end result of that. So that took me out for it, for it, not too long, but for a decent amount of time. So I got back from a tour in America, I think, and was supposed to return two weeks later. I also got married in the middle of that tour as well. I think I took wow. like four or five weeks off to get married, Scotty and I, and then we were on the road together. Albertine would go on to become four times platinum in Aotearoa, New Zealand, as well as gold in Australia and Canada. 
It was the album that presented America to Brooke Fraser. At home, the album was nominated for no less than five New Zealand Music Awards in 2007, winning Airplay Record of the Year with Deciphering Me and Highest Selling Album. In 2009, Brooke went on to receive the International Achievement Award. In 2007, Albertine won the prestigious APRA AMCOS Silver Scroll Award. It showed a depth and maturity to the young songwriter, her observational way of telling stories and making sense of the world. Could be fair to say Brooke really found her voice with this record and acknowledged her place in all this and how she wanted to serve as a songwriter. Fifteen years on, the songs on Albertine remain as timeless as ever. Just like the one and only C.S. Lewis says, even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it's been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. It couldn't be more true of this record. For Brooke, it was about keeping her word, her promise to Joelle, her promise to Albertine, sharing her story and using the power of songwriting to deliver an important message. Here's Marshall again. I have the plaque up on my wall, you know, and people walk in and they're like, you did that record? And they sort of stop. You know, like, like if you know that record, there's a moment of honor that almost comes when, it, when you acknowledge it. You know, like, it's a real record. And I say that as a person who loves music and I love all kinds of music, stupid music, fun music, dance music, rock music, whatever. But I don't know. You know, I think we got, I mean, I don't even want to say we, because at the end of the day, I think Brooke, like I said, she had that self-possession, that determined self-possession to know that she had to get this story out and then she had the humility to respect the story as well for brooke making albertine formed the backdrop to key moments in her life it was a mosaic of where she was personally professionally and creatively and marked the moment where she found purpose in her life's work i'd love to just ask one more question which i guess kind of connects everything that we've been talking about but in 2021 what do you feel the responsibility of a songwriter is and the power of a song like Albertine and the way that you told that story? Where do you feel our responsibility as writers and artists kind of lies to honour the human experience and in particular telling people's stories and historical events? I just wonder how you kind of reflect on that in 2021 for new writers coming through that could potentially do the same thing, I guess. I guess to that, I would say there is an artist, a Japanese artist called Makoto Fujimura, who wrote a really beautiful book about art that I read a couple of years ago. You could probably just Google his name and it would come up. But he talks in it about a moment he had when he was early on in his career. He had just gotten married and he and his wife, Judy, were living in an apartment. They were barely making rent, could hardly afford to eat. And he tells the story in this book about how he was at home one day, they had no food in the fridge. He was trying to figure out how they were going to make rent. And then his wife, Judy, came home and she was carrying a bouquet of flowers and he got really angry at her. And he was like, how can you buy flowers? Like, we can't even afford to eat. And um, he writes in his book that he said, Judy said something that's resonated so that 30 years now. She said, our souls need to eat too. And I think that is the responsibility of artists and songwriters in the world. We need art. The world needs art. 
And we need all of it. We need the stuff that is just fun and just makes us feel good in the moment or distracts us from some of the parts of life that are hard. And then we need the art that can kind of tell the gamut of the human experience. We need songs that continue to tell the human story, even if you're writing about a tree, but you're writing about the tree from your experience of having beheld that tree, whatever it is that you notice about it. But I I love that we're all alive at this time in history because it's hard and it's tricky and there's so much that's changing and that we all need to navigate. And we need art to help us do that. We need art to help point us to some of the the truer narratives when perhaps there are so many false or distracting or misleading or even slightly true ones. Sometimes slightly true narratives are more dangerous than false ones because they have come so close to being true, but they're not it. So I guess I would encourage all the songwriters, bring the world your art. And I guess go back to that C.S. Lewis quote, don't focus all your efforts on trying to be original. Just be wholly committed to telling the truth and then you'll probably do something original without even realising you've done it. You've been listening to Resonate, 15 years of Brooke Fraser's Albertine, a one-off episode special exploring the story of Albertine, one of Brooke's most important records. This episode was written, produced and edited by Anna Lovies from Sony Music New Zealand, recorded and mixed by Jordan Smith from Native Audio, and made possible thanks to Campbell Smith, Poppy Towhill, and Amy Ha of CRS Management, Ariana Myris and Greg Junovich of Native Audio, and our guests Marshall Altman and Christopher Pooley. And of course, Brooke Fraser. I've been your host, Ash Wallace. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Sony Music New Zealand. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the award-winning podcast, Resonate, 10 Years of Brooke Fraser's Flags, a special deep dive into the album that took Brooke to international fame. Produced by Kirsten Johnston and hosted by Melody Thomas, it's a goodie.